All right, we're going to get started tonight, and uh, man, it's great to have you here. Uh, we're glad that you could be a part of this, and, and um, my name is Eric Christensen. If you're visiting with us, we are grateful that you're here, and uh, thankful that you could come and be a part of this. I, I don't know about you, but this is one of the most fascinating topics to me uh, in science as well as scripturally how we view certain things. And I'm grateful for the men that have come and uh, are going to be sharing with us. Mike Riddle tonight is going to be sharing with us. Did you all get a brochure? Uh, we have brochures for you, and it lays out uh, the whole kind of a, a schedule in the morning. And so Mike is going to be doing a, a, a breakout session. Where's Joe Rennick? Did, was he able to stay, or did he have to leave? I don't, I don't know if he's going to be here. Well, Joe's going to be a part of it. Uh, John Garth. I think he's here as well. John is going to be sharing as well. And then Ray Mondragon, I think I saw you. Yeah, Ray spoke this morning, did a great job as well, and then is going to have a couple breakout sessions in the morning. Let's go to the Lord, and then I'm going to hand it over to Mike. And uh, I just want to warn you, those of you sitting up in the front, uh, he, he was in the Marines, and so he likes to ask you questions. And, and uh, see this guy right here? He, he, you need to ask him. It would be good. Yeah, you're welcome. Let's go to the Lord in prayer, okay? Father, we love you. I thank you so much for tonight, and I thank you for this time to come together, and uh, Lord, just to celebrate you. And I thank you for Mike as he comes and shares with us. I pray that you give him grace uh, and, Lord, clarity of thought and speech. And Father, may we be receptive to what you have to say to us tonight. We know that the heavens declare your glory. And so, Father, what a beautiful opportunity it is to uh, just study about who you are and to recognize the handiwork uh, of creation. Lord, we love you. We are grateful for tonight. We're thankful for all that you've done for us. Use this time to uh, glorify your name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, thank you for coming out tonight. Isn't it a wonderful time to be a Bible-believing Christian? It's not because it's getting easier, but because it's getting harder. It means the opportunities are great for all of us. Our topic tonight is what I call three power questions. There's more than three, but um, we only have a a limited time here. Three power questions. And then we're going to open it up to a QA and a session. I'll ask the questions, you will answer them. (laughs) Well, here's our three questions. How did life originate? Where did the matter come from to create this universe? And where did dinosaurs come from? Those will be our three power questions. Now, one of the things about science, if we're going to talk about facts and science, facts and science must be observable and repeatable. Those are two of the qualifications to become a fact in science. Evolution is often taught as a fact. Matter of fact, some states mandate evolution is taught as a fact. I'm going to show you tonight that those states are not doing education. They're doing indoctrination. So let's start with number one. I want to get right into this. The origin of life. How did life begin? Well, we've got three options. Did it evolve by naturalistic processes? Did God create life? Or did we come from aliens? <laughs> well, we can rule number three out. We don't even have to talk about that one right now. Because that doesn't answer the question, how did life originate? It just pushes the question to outer space. So we won't address that one. I have another whole talk on just that. So let's start with the origin of life. We can divide this into two areas. We've got biological evolution. We've got chemical evolution. 
Chemical evolution deals with the origin of life. Biological evolution is often called the diversity of life or Darwinian evolution. In other words, from this picture you'll see that all Darwinian evolution depends on how that first life got started. If evolutionists cannot demonstrate how life got started through naturalistic processes, the whole model of evolution is based on faith, not observable science. So let's take a look. That's why this is such an important topic. We need to make sure all our junior hires know how to answer this question. Because what I'm going to tell you tonight is nothing more than sixth grade science. That's as far as I go. Now, here's the evolution story. And I'm doing this from about 10,000 feet up. Over millions of years, in some primordial soup, molecules bonded together to make a living cell. In other words, time plus chance equals life. That's what it basically boils down to. Given enough time is one of the holy grails of evolution. Time, millions and millions of years, and lots of chance activities, and we can get life. Now, there's another story. It comes from the Bible. For by him all things were created, that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible. Whether the thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through him and for him. Now, does the word all mean all there? I'll give you a scientific definition. You betcha. He qualified all with visible and invisible things. That's everything. So we have a difference here between the evolution story and what the Bible teaches. So I'm going to do a little review here. I need to do a little review of some terminology. Why do we do this? Because the look out there, it looks like some of you may have been out of the biology classroom for maybe a year or two. So I'm going to do some review here. We'll start with atoms. What are atoms? They're a basic unit of matter. Now, what do atoms like to do? Well, if you're non-technical, we say they like to get together. If you're more of a scientist, they bond. They will bond together to make things called molecules, and one we're all familiar with is water, H2O. So atoms bond together to make certain types of molecules. Now, some molecules can bond together to make things called amino acids. Now, notice I did not say mean old acids. We know some people have those too, <laughs> but we're talking about amino acids. They're going to be very important here. Why? Because they're like the building blocks of life. If we can't get amino acids, we cannot get life. So they can be very important. Then finally, amino acids can bond together to make proteins. That's all we need to know here. That's all we need to know for science. In other words, we do not have to talk about DNA, RNA, ribosomes, and all those other things. How, how many got excited when I said terms like that? Anybody get excited? Yes, yes. <laughs> so let's start here. I'm going to take us back to the 1950s, the Miller experiment. This was in just about every biology textbook in this country, still in many biology textbooks. The Miller experiment. Miller set out to create the building blocks of life in a laboratory. Now, his objective was not to get life, but to get the building blocks. He wanted to show that we could get amino acids through naturalistic processes. So he built this spark chamber in, there, in his laboratory. And in there, he tried to simulate what he believed the Earth's atmosphere was like these alleged billions of years ago. So he put gases like methane and ammonia in there, and he left oxygen out. Then he generated electrical sparks in there to drive the chemical reactions. Then it goes on to state that Miller got amino acids, and folks, that is a fact. Miller did get amino acids. So now we can teach why do we need a creator God when we can do it ourselves. That is what they teach in the public education system. To coin somebody's phrase now, 
You'll know who I'm talking about. Let's look at the rest of the story. Those things that are deliberately left out of the textbooks. It is called science. Critical thinking. Are we allowed to do that here? You know why we can do critical thinking here? This is not California. (laughs) I grew up in California too, so (laughs) yes. Critical thinking. Why did Miller use the gases he did? Why did he leave oxygen out? What type of amino acids did Miller really get? And what were the real results? I read these textbooks, and all they say is Miller got amino acids for life. And drop it there. So let's look at this. Miller left oxygen out. Why did he do that? Well, Miller was a very smart man. Cannot deny that. Very smart man. He knew, as we know today, that in the presence of oxygen, life cannot start. Now, how many need oxygen here? At the molecular level, oxygen destroys chemical bonds. So life cannot start in the presence of oxygen. Here's Dwayne Gist, PhD in biochemistry. An atmosphere containing free oxygen would be fatal to all origin of life schemes. Here's another gentleman, geochemistry. Findings suggest that the earlier levels, 4.4 billion years ago, you know, he believes in the old age, were very close to current levels, oxygen-based. The current scientific evidence clearly supports this earth has always had an oxygen presence. You know what they teach in the schools? The early earth did not have any oxygen. Our public education system is ignoring scientific evidence. So let's play the game. Let's suppose there was no oxygen back then. Let's take all the oxygen out of the planet. And we take all the oxygen away. We also take something very important away that protects us called the ozone. It's made of oxygen, O3. You know what happens when we take the ozone away? I'll give you the technical term. We all become instant crispy critters. Why? Because without that ozone protection, the ultraviolet rays of the sun will come down and fry everything. So here's what we know based on observable and repeatable science. Life cannot start in the presence of oxygen, and it cannot start without oxygen. Isn't that good news? Not if you're believing in an evolution. But wait, Mike, there's another story. We didn't start on the land. Life started way down deep in the oceans. So far down there, the sun's rays could not penetrate. And I love it when people use that story, because I bring up a very interesting word called hydrolysis. Hydrolysis literally means water splitting. How many need water here? But you know what water does at the molecular level? Destroys chemical bonds. As soon as any amino acids might have formed in the ocean, within a matter of weeks, they would have all been destroyed. That, folks, is based on observable and repeatable science. There's not many places left for the evolutionists now. Can't start with oxygen, can't start without oxygen, and can't start in water. But we do have to cover this one thing. Miller got amino acids. That's a fact. Now, there are hundreds and hundreds of different types of amino acids, but only 20 are used in life. So life is very selective there. You get one of these wrong amino acids, you you could be in big trouble. Now, these amino acids come in two shapes, just like we have a right hand and a left hand. But right and left hand are about the same, aren't they? Four fingers and a thumb. But are they really the same? No. Look what happens when I put one hand behind the other. Notice my thumb and fingers on the opposite sides? Your left and right hand are what we call 
mirror images of each other. Mirror images. Now, as amino acids come in the same kind of shape. And to keep this easy, guess what they predominantly call them? Left-handed amino acids and right-handed amino acids. Isn't that nice? <laughs> now, we do have other terms for them, but predominantly what you're going to see in the textbooks is left and right-handed amino acids. What's the difference? Well, just like our hands, they're made up of the same atoms, same components. And also like our hands, they are mirror images. Left and right-handed amino acids are mirror images. Now, why is that so important? That is important because every single amino acid in every protein in your body, and you have trillions and trillions of these, is left-handed. You do not have a single right-handed amino acid in any protein in your body. Matter of fact, every amino acid in every protein in all life forms is 100% left-handed. Now, why is that so important? Well, what did Miller really get? See, this is what they don't tell us. What Miller really ended up with was an even mixture, 50% left-handed and 50% right-handed. Folks, that is not life. That's a poison to life. That is as far away from life as you can actually get. Why don't they put that in the textbooks? Every experiment we've ever done always comes up with about an even mixture of 50-50. Life requires 100% left-handed. Even if we start with all left-handed amino acids, and we can do that, they will naturally start reverting back to a mixture of left and right-handedness. In other words, the natural tendency is always away from life, never towards it. God has given us all the evidence. We have no excuse for not believing. When we die and we become as dead as we can be, and that's going to be pretty dead, won't it? <laughs> you know what happens to our 100% left-handed amino acids? They start reverting back to a mixture of left and right-handedness. What did Miller really simulate? death. That's all man has been able to come up with. Our best scientists in the world cannot even produce one single biological protein. Now, why do they continue to teach known wrong information in the textbooks? Now, I want to illustrate why they do this. Now, in order to illustrate this, why they continue to teach known wrong information, I'm going to need to exercise my spiritual gift on you. I have a very unique spiritual gift. It is called creating anxiety in other people. <laughs> it's a really good one to have. How am I going to do this? I'm going to give you a math problem. How many feel anxious right now? Yes. And I'm going to give you this problem, and you all must have an answer. Why? Because I'm going to call on you. And I'm going to call on you even if you aren't looking at me. How many are wishing you hadn't come tonight? <laughs> so let me give you the math problem. And before you try and answer, let me qualify the kind of answers you can give. So here's your math problem. How much is 3 plus 1, and you cannot use the number 4, because I don't like the way it looks. It's a little bit too religious for me, and we're talking science here tonight. <laughs> now, I want your answer as an exact number. I will not accept 3.999 repeating. No fingers in the air. Keep your shoes on. Don't want to see your toes. I don't want the answer spelled out. I don't want any formulas like 10 minus 6 or 2 squared. If you're multilingual, I want your answer in English. I don't want any Roman numerals. And if you're one of these computer geeks, I want your answer in base 10. <laughs> 
there's a penalty for giving me one of these wrong answers. It's called 20 push-ups Marine Corps style. <laughs> so who has an answer to three plus one before I just start calling on you? Anybody want to volunteer? We have a volunteer in the back. 31 is a correct answer. I've, 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 I've got to call on you because you don't like math. You put your hand up. And, and you were going to say seven, weren't you? No, go ahead and say seven. seven. Correct. See, I knew you knew math. I knew you really liked math. Uh, <laughs> I don't understand that language. <laughs> Instant vote. Push-ups or not? Push-ups. Yes, 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 yes. Okay. I need one more. I need another volunteer here. Let's get somebody. Oh, yes. 25 is a correct answer. No, wait a minute. How can all these different answers to 3 plus 1, like 31, 25, and 7 be correct? Well, here's the solution, folks. If you rule the answer out, if you cannot accept the truth, you must accept anything in its place. And ladies and gentlemen, that is what evolution really is. They've ruled out the truth of a creator God and must put anything in its place. And that is what's happening in our public education system. It's like teaching three plus one can equal seven. And our students are coming out of these schools repeating the same mistakes over and over again because we're unwilling to teach the truth about science anymore. We'd rather teach evolutionism than science. We've got to get back to teaching science regardless of what people want to believe. Hubert Yaki, PhD in physics, in his book Information Theory, Origin, of life. Now, he's an evolutionist, but he makes this statement. A great deal of effort has been expended in finding theories for the origin of life without success. Again, we can't even get a single biological protein. Jonathan Safadi, PhD in physical chemistry. The origin of life is a big problem for a materialist. Now, what do we mean by materialist? That's the worldview of materialism. All that exists is mass and energy. John Aston, PhD in chemistry and professor of biomedical sciences. Dating the origin of life to a time of billions of years ago still doesn't help explain how life could start from non-living matter. So this whole idea of burying the answer in billions of years is nothing but a faith issue. Facts require observation and repeatability, and the evolutionists cannot present that. Franklin M. Harrell, professor of biochemistry, Colorado State University. The origin of life is also a stubborn problem with no solution in sight. Andrew Noel, you've got to believe him, Harvard. The shorter answer is we don't really know how life originated on this planet. There have been a variety of experiments that tell us some possible roads, but we remain in substantial ignorance. You know what that means? The whole foundation of Darwinian evolution is based on faith. That's why we need to train our junior hires. When they get to biology classroom in ninth grade, they're prepared. So no one has observed the origin of life. It can't be repeated. Conclusion, chemical evolution is not a fact. It is a faith. And they're getting away with teaching that faith in our public school system in the name of science. That is not science. Well, let's go to number two. Cosmological evolution. The Big Bang. But here's the critical question. Where did the matter come from to create everything? Well, here's some common explanations I hear. 13 to 15 years, billion years ago, there was a Big Bang. Now, don't think of this Big Bang as a dynamite explosion. That is not what evolutionists teach. That's a false idea. We need to keep things accurate. What it is, it's an expansion, a hot fireball, expansion of space and time. That's the Big Bang, expansion of space and time. So don't get the idea this dynamite exploded out there. Science does not deal with this question. We hear that. Well, we don't want to deal with it. Well, I do. If you're going to teach it in the school system, we need to deal with it. 
This is not a question you're allowed to ask in class. I've had several college students come to me and say they asked this question. The professor said you can't answer that question. Whatever happened to, ask, to education? Oh, wait, a quantum fluctuation. That's how it happened. You know what a quantum fluctuation is? It's another name for magic. <laughs> I understand a little bit about this quantum physics, what's happening out there how things are popping into existence, out of existence all the time, and we have these ripples out there. They're really not entities. They're non-material. Folks, if you've got ripples out there, there's some form of energy. Where'd that energy come from? From nothing, nothing comes, is the most accurate statement. Where and how did the matter and energy come from? Paul Davies, physicist and evolutionist, in his book, The Edge of Infinity. The Big Bang represents the instantaneous suspension of physical laws, the sudden abrupt flash of lawlessness that allowed something to come out of nothing. It represents a true... What? <laughs> miracle. You know, the difference here is they're relying on miracles without a miracle maker. We have miracles, but we have a miracle maker. Big difference in our faith. We have a reasonable faith. Discover. Well, I like this one. Let me know if this one's too technical. The universe burst into something from absolutely nothing. Zero, nada. And as it got bigger, it became filled with even more stuff that came from absolutely nowhere. <laughs> that go over people's head? <laughs> now, there's three possibilities where that matter came from. Number one, the universe created itself. Number two, the universe has always existed or it had to be created. Those are the only three possibilities. Now, if we could show through science and logic the first two are not possible... That would leave us only one possibility, wouldn't it? In other words, we're going to use the principle 2 Corinthians 10, 4, and 5 here. 2 Corinthians 10, 4, and 5 tells us we're to bring down all strongholds and everything that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. Number one, did the universe create itself? Well, what would be the cause? If you don't have anything out there, you can't have anything to be a cause, can you? In other words, for something to create itself, what that means is it has to have the power to act before it even exists. How can anything have any power if it does not exist? And where did the energy come from to create itself? And if there's nothing out there, folks, this is what people don't think of, there's nothing out there, nothing, then there's no space out there to pop yourself into existence. Learn to think critically and ask questions so we can really rule number one out. And don't get to this idea there are many, many universes out there. That is strictly Hollywood, not based on any observational evidence whatsoever. Don't even call it a theory. So let's look at number two. Has the universe always existed? If the universe always existed, then it would be an infinite number of years old. How long is an infinity? Well, infinity, what does it mean? Time without end, Latin for boundless, unlimited extent of time. In other words, it's more than a billion trillion years. But this is the one we need to focus on, the thing called the second law of thermodynamics. What does thermo mean? Heat. What we're talking about here is heat energy. Now, I go through a lot of textbooks, and I don't know if I found an accurate description of the second law of thermodynamics in any biology textbook. I don't even find the accurate definition in a lot of physics textbooks in this country. Because a lot of them will say we're going from order to disorder. Folks, that is not an accurate definition. Because there are processes that will naturally go from disorder to order. That can happen naturally in some cases. We're dealing with heat energy here. Some will say we're going from complexity to less complexity. How do you measure that? See, the real definition deals with heat energy. Energy goes from a state of 
usable energy to a state of less usable energy for doing work in an isolated system. That is a more accurate definition. Don't be careful of using order to disorder. That is only a correlation, but not a real definition. I like to do an illustration here that will hopefully simplify this thing called no refills. How many want one of those cars up there? Yeah, those would be pretty nice. Matter of fact, let's suppose somebody is going to offer you a brand new car. And you get to choose any car you want. It's free. And everything for the lifetime of this car is free. Anything breaks down, it's fixed for free. Is that a pretty good deal? Anybody read the small print up here? Know what it says? All you ever get is one tank of gas, no refills. Did that just ruin everything? One tank of gas, once that gasoline's gone, that's it. So what happens after you've driven that car about 300 miles? All the gasoline's used up. In other words, all the available energy to drive that car has now been used up. It can no longer be used to do that form of work. That's the principle of the second law of thermodynamics. Energy, go, energy goes from a state of usable energy to a state of less usable energy for doing work. Now let's go to outer space. Stars, what do they do? They burn up their energy, don't they? Finite amount of energy. That's what stars do. They have a finite amount of energy. They're not getting energy from anywhere else. They do something called thermonuclear fusion. I only put that up there because I can pronounce the word. Now, they burn their lighter elements into heavier elements. That's what we mean by fusion here. We go from, what's the first one there? Who knows the first one? Who are my chemists here? Hydrogen, then to helium, then on up to things like carbon, oxygen, and iron. Yes. And once they've burned up all their energy then many will begin to gravitationally collapse inward, then explode into what we call a great big supernova. That's the end of the star. Now, if this universe had no beginning, it means it's an infinite number of years old, then after about 100 million years, all our supergiant stars would have burned up because they're burning their energy much faster. There should be no supergiant stars out there. After about 10 billion years, stars like our sun would all have burned up. After about 100 billion years, most every star in this universe would have burned up. And certainly after a trillion years, there should be no stars left. Anybody seen any stars out there lately? If you have, that's pretty good evidence. This universe had to have a beginning. can't be eternal. Oh, but wait a minute, Mike. Wait a minute. You forgot something. New stars are forming all the time. I hear it all the time. New stars are forming all the time. Well, how does that happen? Well, we get these great big gas and dust clouds out there called nebula. And they're rotating around and around and around. As they rotate around and around and around, they begin to gravitationally collapse inward and eventually form a new star. That's how it happens. There's a technical term for that process. Baloney. <laughs> Anybody that's had Physics 101 knows that doesn't happen. Physics 101 will teach you that doesn't happen. Because see, as that cloud rotates around and around, it will begin to gravitationally collapse inward due to the rotation. But as it rotates around and begins to collapse inward, it generates something called heat pressure. And these are things we can measure. The heat pressure is always stronger than the gravity and will always cause that cloud to expand outward, not inward. No one has ever observed a new star to form. It's only conjecture, assumptions, but not based on any observable or repeatable science. See, the universe cannot be an infinite number of years old, or it would be completely out of energy now. Not only would the stars not be there, but no life would be here. We'd be in what we call a virtual heat death, virtually no movement. Anybody here moving, so 
You just proved. Just by your movement, you proved that's all wrong. Thank you for that. Joseph Silk, PhD in astronomy, very good astronomer, wrote a book called The Big Bang. It's only fair to say we still have a theory without a beginning. Stan Audible, PhD in astrophysics. Astronomers have not the slightest evidence for the supposed quantum production of the universe out of a primordial nothingness. The Big Bang doesn't answer the question, folks. The question is, where did the matter come from to create the Big Bang? Because you cannot have something go bang until you have something there that can go bang. Just common sense. And if you're going to teach the Big Bang, you've got to address this situation. Or take the Big Bang out of the science class. So the universe could not have created itself, and it could not have always existed. Or we're just in complete denial of the laws of science. That leaves us one option. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. That's our only real option. That's the only one that agrees with the laws of science. Are you starting to see that evolution is based on faith all the way through? Now let's do this one. Dinosaurs. Here's the common question. What happened to the dinosaurs? That question came up this morning. I answered it. They died. (laughs) Okay, that's all we need to do about that one. Here's the more important question. Where did the dinosaurs come from? That's an important question. Why is that so important? I've been to museums all over this world. I've got many, many dinosaur books I've gone through. And you know what I see in the museums? Dinosaur bones. What do I see in the textbooks? Pictures of dinosaurs. What am I not seeing? All the transitions that led up to the dinosaurs. Where are they? They're not in any museums. I was in a uh, college, secular college, during the Q&A time, got in a little debate with a gentleman. And finally, I asked him, where's the evidence? Where's the evidence for the origin of the dinosaurs? And his answer was this. Mike, they're in the back rooms in the museums. <laughs> That's what you call the big bluff. If they had these things, they'd be all over the place, but they don't have them. Let's look at the standard story. Dinosaurs evolved into existence about 220 million years ago, long before man was here. That's the standard story. Now, here's the question. How did the first dinosaur get on Earth? Here's a website for teachers. Dinosaurs evolved from more primitive reptiles about 230 million years ago. Among the earliest known dinosaurs was Eoraptor from Argentina, a dog-sized meat-eater about 228 million years old. Uh, There's Eoraptor. Does that look like a dinosaur to you? Looks an awful lot like a dinosaur. So that didn't answer the question at all, did it? I want to know where this creature came from. Here's another one. Dinosaurs didn't spring suddenly into existence 200 million years ago. Huge, toothy, and hungry for grub. Like all living things, they evolved slowly and gradually from previously existing creatures. In this case, a family of primitive reptiles known as archosaurs, or ruling lizards. They look like reptiles to me already, don't? How about you? Where did they come from? Here's Dimetrodon, Greek for two measures of teeth. Lived about 280 million years ago, extinct about 230 million years ago, about 11 feet long and 500 pounds. That look like a reptile to you? I want to know where that thing came from. I don't see anything leading up to that. Frank Sherwin, zoology, makes this statement. If sauropods evolve, where are they? Why are they not in the fossil record as pre-sauropods? that have at least two or three or four of the uniquely sauropod features. What are sauropods? Anybody know what a sauropod is? They're, they're four-footed plant eaters. Those are the nice ones that'll step on you. 
In other words, where are all these creatures, these supposed, there should be hundreds to thousands of these transitions leading up to these dinosaurs. Why are they not in the museums? The Illustrated Encyclopedia of Dinosaurs. The question of the origin of dinosaurs is one that has puzzled paleontologists for many years. The Natural History Museum Book of Dinosaurs. Where did dinosaurs come from? That apparently simple question has been the subject of intense debate among scientists for over 150 years. Get in the picture. Here's another gentleman. Tracing the origin of the earliest dinosaurs has been a major challenge for paleontologists because there are no uncontested fossils from their earliest days on Earth. Let's go to the Smithsonian. That's a Christian uh, organization, isn't it? <laughs> Not hardly. Pure atheist. Pure atheist. Look what they have to say. The discussion over where dinosaurs came from in the first place is often overlooked. Hypothesis of dinosaur origins has been just as controversial as those of triggers for the end of the crustaceous mass extinction. See, it is a recognized problem for the evolutionist. The origin of dinosaurs. Here's one they presented called the Thecondens. Let's look at that creature. Here's the text in Nature of Life. Small lizards that ran on two legs and gave rise to the giant reptiles collectively known as dinosaurs. It already looks like a dinosaur, doesn't it? Can we examine this evidence? We don't have a choice here. We're going to do it. There's our Thecondent. We're expected to believe that that creature evolved into creatures like Triceratops. Those went from two legs to four legs and horns. Would you like to see the creatures with three legs? <laughs> Being a little facetious there. But certainly, that's a major transition. That's a lot of changes. Where are the transitions? And also evolved into the large creatures like sauropods and creatures like Stegosaurus. And absolutely no evidence were left for this. To claim that dinosaurs evolved, folks, is a claim with no evidence. It's called faith. See, here's the logical deduction. It is logical and reasonable to believe that God, not unknown events, created the dinosaurs. Because that is exactly what the evidence has produced. It does not in any way support the evolution model. So where did the dinosaurs come from? And God made the beast of the earth according to its kind, cattle according to its kind, and everything that creeps on the earth according to its kind. And God saw that it was good, so the evening and the morning were the sixth day. What day did God create dinosaurs? Sixth day. So right there in Genesis chapter 1, we've got the answer. Dinosaurs were created the same day that God created man. And we have overwhelming scientific evidence to support that too. Not that we need the scientific evidence. If you're requiring scientific evidence, folks, then the Bible's not your authority. We need to make sure the Bible's our authority. His word is true in all aspects. And there's a pretty good description of what could be a dinosaur in the book of Job, chapters 15, or chapter 40, verses 15 through 18. Behemoth. Pretty good description of what could be a dinosaur. So the real facts. No one observed the origin of the universe. So that can't really be a fact, can it? No one observed, has ever observed a star or a galaxy form. No one observed life evolved from non-life. We came and do it in the laboratory. No one has observed one creature evolved a new creature, have we? That's never been observed. It's only conjecture and assumptions. No one observed a mutation create new genetic information, repeat information, but no mutation that we know of anywhere has created new genetic information. It can cause a loss of information or a loss of functionality, but never new information. That right there destroys all of Darwinian evolution. 
No fossil evidence for the origin of dinosaurs, and no one ever observed millions of years. So that's a big bluff too, isn't it? There are your real facts, folks. So what is evolution? It's a faith. And that faith, ladies and gentlemen, offers you no hope whatsoever. Nothing. But our creator, Jesus Christ, paid the price, didn't he? For all our sins, he paid that price. That's who our God is. In spite of the fact that we rebelled against him in the garden, he made a promise right there in Genesis 3.15 that he would send a Savior and we would have victory. And that Savior took our place on that cross, didn't he? You know who deserved those nails and those thorns? We did, didn't we? We're the ones that should have been. Can you imagine that pain? You ever thought about that, that pain? But our God did that for us because he loved us. And it says in the Bible, even when we were dead in our sins, he loved us. You know what? He loves people who don't believe in him also, doesn't he? Because I'm a perfect case of one. It wasn't until I was 30 years old that I finally gave my life to the Lord. I was a slow learner. That's who our God is. Never forget who our God is. And next time you're out there in a clear night and you see those billions and trillions and quadrillions of stars out there, many dwarfing the size of our sun, think of this. He made every one of them. That's who our God is. He did all that, and he knows you personally, and he cares for you. That's who he is. Now, I do have a video out there called Four Power Questions. There's one extra one on there. And on there, I give my testimony and answer the question very briefly, where did God come from? We do have some dinosaur material out there. We have a dinosaur book, and we have a dinosaur DVD for children, also for adults, big children. (laughs) If you're interested in medium technical books, Here's one called Without Excuse. The whole book is about information. What is it and where does it come from? It is one of our most, starting with, if you're going to talk about evidence, this is our most powerful evidence against materialism. Because we can prove that information is non-material. It requires something material to hold it, but the information itself is non-material, which does away with the whole worldview of materialism for which evolution is based on. Very powerful book, only medium technical. We have a, a DVD out there that talks about the days of creation, powerful evidence that shows the days had to be real days and why this issue matters. Here's another one. If you're interested in our American foundation, that we were founded upon biblical principles, what our current situation is, how we lost what we had, and how we can win it back. Very motivational and powerful talk here. Armies and nurseries. I don't tell you the difference between an army and nursery until the very end of the DVD. Did that on purpose. Here's one called Astronomy and the Bible. Goes into a lot more detail than we went in here today. And here's one we're giving away almost free at $5.00 very powerful pro-life DVD. Talks about cloning. Why cloning doesn't work as well as they tell us. Stem cells. We have embryonic stem cells. We don't want to use those because it's another form of abortion and they don't work. Then I talk about the adult stem cells, which do work. They're not abortion. You can use your own stem cells to heal yourself. And we made great progress with those and we continue to make great progress. Then I talk about the sanctity of human life. Life begins at conception. That is a genetic fact. 
I don't show any horrible pictures on here. show a lot of pictures of babies even smiling in the womb. So a very powerful DVD for $5. Then we'll talk about our training courses. This is what our ministry does, Creation Training Initiative. We're about training others to be able to teach creation and apologetics in your churches and communities. That's what we're trying to do. We have one-day courses. We have three one-day courses we offer. We come to you. All you need to do is say, Mike, we'd like to have you come. We will come to your church. We charge the students, not the church. We pay our own way. We'll take any gifts we can, but we charge the students. $45 for a one-day class. You get the full manual. The manual is anywhere from 80 to 100 pages long. We feed you lunch and snacks. So it's well worth $45. And they're certified for Christian school teachers for a continuing education unit. We will come to you. Our basic creation training class is for teens and above. 13, even 12 years old, we've had students in there and above. It's a wonderful way to get your teens ready to defend their faith. Because we will teach them how to defend. We have a whole chapter on the days of creation and how to answer the challenges like, what about the gap theory? What about the Hebrew language is very poetic? I'm going to answer that one tomorrow morning. Uh, what about 2 Peter 3, the day is a thousand years, a thousand years is the day of the Lord. What about plant death? We answer all those challenges. We answer questions about the flood. We show the geology and fossil record confirm the flood. We go into apologetics like, who did Cain marry? How can the first three days of creation be real days that the sun wasn't there to the fourth day? You'll find out that is really a very easy answer once you look at it. And many other questions we answer in there. Then we bring down the four pillars of evolutionism. And one happens to be the dating methods. We show that they're not as accurate as people claim, nor even close. Then we have one on advanced apologetics in one day class for high school and above. In there, we answer some of the tough questions like, show me any evidence for the existence of God. We have plenty of evidence for that, folks. Or how can you call God good when he allows evil to exist? Then we go through a whole chapter on critical thinking skills. Then for anybody who wants to learn how to teach, here's your master course right here. One-day course on how to teach the way the Bible says we're to teach. How to motivate your students. I use Jesus for the example there. The woman at the well is the greatest example of motivation I've ever seen. Jesus was the master teacher. I take my lessons from him, not from what I learned in the university teacher colleges. You'll be amazed at what the Bible has to say about teaching. How to measure your success as a teacher. Give you a hint. It's not what you do as the teacher. It's what your students can do. That's how you measure your success. So three one-day classes. Then we have a five-day Creation Apologetics Teachers College. We're offering that August 1st through 6th this year. We only offer it once a year because it costs us a lot of money to put this on. We supplement this course out of our own ministry by $28,000. So you don't have to pay the full cost. We offer it in <clears throat> Ridgecrest Conference Center, North Carolina, right outside Asheville. Beautiful place. We only take 60 students, college and above. You will not come there for entertainment. The only entertainment you get while you're there is when you're dreaming at night. <laughs> no fluff allowed. Ten hours in the classroom, studying at night, and you will not get tired. That was the design that we put into this class. You will not allow to be tired. To date, our success rate is 100%. And you don't come and just listen. You'll have to do two five-minute presentations or less. Five minutes or less. Not five minutes and one second. I take a point off if you go a second over. 
five minutes or less. And we grade you on your technical knowledge and your communication skills. We've had people who've never talked in front of anybody before in their life, and they will pass. My job is I only train for success. I do not tolerate failure in Christian education. I want success, and we will achieve it as a team. Then you have a three-minute defense presentation you'll do. You won't know the exact topic until you get in front of us. Then we're going to give you the challenge. You have three minutes or less to give the answer. And then you do a written final exam. And again, we've had 100% success rate. Over half our students are now out there teaching in their churches and communities. That's what this course does. There's no other course like this anywhere. We have a brochure out there, a four-page color brochure. We also have a trifold brochure that talks about our one-day courses. Um, you can earn a scholarship. I just got another one in the mail today. You can earn a scholarship to this. Write about two-thirds of a page, 400 word or less on the subject. Creation is too divisive, therefore we shouldn't teach it in the church. Respond to that, you could win a scholarship. Pays your tuition and your travel to and from the course. The tuition for this course is $540. That pays for the full five days of training, your lodging, which is nice, like, nice, nice hotel rooms, private rooms, private bath, and three very nutritious meals a day. The actual cost is not $540. The actual cost for this, for our ministry, is over $900 a person. So we subsidize this by $28,000. So if you know somebody who'd like to help us support this, we need help to do this. We have what's called the Education Project. This is a four-year project to build minds to think biblically. There isn't too much like this. We think it's the most uh, ambitious and exciting education project we've seen in decades in Christianity. What we're trying to do is a teacher in every church, in every Christian school who can teach biblical creation and apologetics. It's way beyond me. Whoever succeeds me will carry it out. But this is our four-year project to do. We're going to get started on it. If you'd like to help us, we have forms out there. If you'd like to have us come to your church, we have a form out there you can fill out with your name and who to contact at your church. So if you want to help us, we do need help to do this. But we're trying to be on the forefront and train others how to speak and teach. So that's our website, and that's how to contact us. If you want to get with personally, I'll give you my business card. It has my personal email and cell phone number on there. And we love to talk to people. So I'm going to stop there. We're going to open it up to a Q&A time. And if you don't have a question, I will ask them. <laughs> hey, we do want to uh, open it up. We've got some guys that are going to walk around and uh, got a mic. So here, here's kind of the, the rules for the, the questions, okay? Keep it pithy, right? Uh, keep it succinct. Uh, a lot of times people start making statements, and I keep listening for the question. Uh, ask questions. Uh, these guys are going to do their best to, to answer them. Ray, would you mind coming up as well? I'm going to ask you to come up as well. And you do they get bonus morning. questions for asking questions about my grandchildren? There you go. That's bonus it. points <laughs> for that. Okay. All right, good. I've got a first question back here. What is the age of the universe, and is the universe infinite or not? Okay, is the universe infinite or not? We don't know because we can't see that far out there. What is the age of the universe? Well, based on what the Bible teaches... It's about 6,000 years old. Based on what the scientific evidence supports, it's also very young. Because I'm, I'm very familiar with the radiometric dating methods and carbon-14, things like that. And the geology uh, tends to support that also. Now, I know there's many different views on that. But here's the fact. No one can factually say this Earth is billions of years old. 
And we don't have the scientific support to say it's exactly 6,000 years old. So as Christians, we use the Bible and it alone as our authority. Does the Bible explicitly state anywhere it's 6,000 years old? No. But it does give a very strong implication it's 6,000 years old from the genealogies in Genesis chapter 5. You line them all up. It adds up to about 6,000 years. And then in Mark 10, verse 6, Jesus Christ makes this statement. But from the beginning of the creation, God made them male and female. What is Jesus telling us? Man and woman were on this planet from the beginning of the creation. Oh, that's a young earth. You have some more, Ray. The book of Genesis gives you a very, very tight chronology that you can basically date virtually every major event in the book. And from that chronology, if you can just correlate, and you have some other data like 1 Kings 10, or uh, 1 Kings 6, rather, where you, we know a date of a certain event there, the completion of the temple, you can project that into that, and you come up with about 6,143 B.C. About. <laughs> yes. So, again, as Christians, if we really call ourselves followers of Jesus Christ, we have to ask ourselves, is the Bible our authority or not? If we keep referring to science, then maybe it's not our authority on this issue. So we've got to be very careful there. Thank you for that question. That was a very good question. Another question. I'm teaching um, in my math class next week on exponential decay. And could you please give us an example of uh, a falsehood, a false way to use exponential decay and also a true way to do that so I can teach my students? Explain exponential decay to everybody. Um, exponential decay is when you start off with a certain amount of carbon, perhaps, in, in a, a rock or, or a tree, and then it decays as time goes by more and more quickly as time goes by. Well, carbon-14, let's just take that one because that's much easier because it has a shorter half-life. I wouldn't necessarily call it exponential decay because the way it works is every about, the half-life of carbon-14 is about 5,703 years, say about because we've got a 30-year 30, 30, 30 leeway each way. So about 5,730 years. What that means is every 5,730 years, half the remaining carbon-14 in a fossil decays. It's gone. So let's take an example. I've got a nice big round piece of chocolate peanut butter pie here. Ooh, what a bad example, right? <laughs> and during the first hour, I eat half the pie, and I can do that. <laughs> so half the, how much is left? Half the pie. During the second hour, I eat half the remaining pie. How much is left? Quarter. Then the next hour, I eat half the remaining. Now what's left? An eighth. In an exponential, it, you can say something like that, but it's really not quite exponential. It's every... Half-life, the half-life is 5,730. So we go by half-lives rather than exponential necessarily. And the other radiometric dating methods work the same. It's all based on half-lives. What we do is an actual correlation between carbon-12 and carbon-14 in there is what we really do. And we keep track of how much carbon-14 is left. And carbon-14 decays out of something because it's unstable. You know what I just said there? you have carbon-14 in you? Yes, you do. And carbon-14 is unstable, so what does that make you? <laughs> yes. Isn't physics fun now? Wow. Now you've got a reason for acting the way you do. It's your carbon-14. But see, carbon-12 is stable. It never decays. 
So we do a ratio in there. Carbon-12 is always the same. Carbon-14 gets less and less and less. We just measure that ratio. The ratio gets smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller. So eventually there's very little to none left. That's how we actually do the dating. But I, I would rather call it a half-life than uh, an exponential. Because uh, it's always just every 5,730 years, and that is stable. Whether you're creationist and evolutionist, we pretty much agree on the half-life of carbon-14. Now, we're not saying we stay around 5,730 years to watch this thing decay. What we do is we take a population sample of carbon-14 atoms, see how long it takes some of it to decay. We run the experiment over and over and over again. We get the same result. Then we extrapolate that back. How long would it take half of it to decay? That's how we do it in the labs. And we're pretty close on that. We really were pretty good on that one. Does that kind of get at your answer, what you're looking at there? Um, yes, I think so. Thank you. <laughs> okay. Thank you. Yes, uh, the speed of light is, uh, in, in, is a scientifically measurable uh, distance, uh, let's say. So if the universe is only 6,000 years, would we not be able to only see stars that are 6,000 light years away? And why do we see stars that are further than that you want to take in distance? Day? There's a book out by Russ Humphreys, who was a world-class, well, he still is, world-class physicist that worked out of Sandia Labs. He wrote a book, Starlight and Time. He deals with that whole issue. That's, that's a pretty advanced question, by the way, that I don't really I'll have qualification it. to do it. But in the book, he basically makes the point that uh, based on uh, the uh, laws of relativity, theory of relativity, that if you measure, it, it depends on where you measure. And from Earth's perspective, he makes the case that uh, God created in six days from per the perspective of Earth. But as you go further out, clocks would be ticking much more rapidly. And yeah. I'd recommend that book. Yeah. Let me ask a question that you can, anybody can answer. This. Do you believe God created everything out of nothing? Yes. You believe he created us fully formed? then what's the problem of him getting the light here in six days? Do you believe Jesus Christ was dead for three days and came back to life? Is that scientifically possible? Not by any known science, but we still believe the resurrection, don't we? Even though it goes against known science? So what's the problem with, this, with light getting here? See, we limit our God. What Ray was talking about is time dilation. We know that gravity affects time. We know that. We've observed it. The atomic clocks up there, the satellites have to do adjustments all the time. So all our clocks down here work. D don't get a fraction of a second off. So we know gravity affects time, which means if you're in a greater gravitational pull or area, pool, time will go slower there than it might other places. Now, based on the redshift of starlight, it is shown, not proven, but the explanation is our galaxy must be near the center. Now, I'm not talking geocentricity. This was not discovered by creationists. It was discovered by evolutionists based on the redshift of starlight. There our galaxy might be within one million light years of the center of the universe, which would put us in the greatest gravitational pull, which means when just 6,000 years have gone on in this planet, or maybe just six days, maybe thousands of millions of years could have happened out there. Now, a lot of this is still theoretical. We have possible answers is all we can say. We do have to 
have things by faith. We have to admit that sometimes we have to accept by faith. We have other possible answers for that question. But here's the question I always ask an evolutionist. I'll tell them we have possible answers, and I'll answer, give you some of those possible answers, if you would answer two questions for me. Number one, where'd your stars come from? I know they can't answer that. They can bluff their way through, but they have no observable evidence for where their stars came from. No stars, no light, so what are we talking about then? <coughs> Number two, it's called the homogeneous temperature of the universe. When I look out there and we look out there, we see a homogeneous temperature. Same temperature everywhere. You know there has not been enough time in 15 billion years to have a homogeneous temperature? In order to have a homogeneous temperature, <clears throat> all the light energy over this side of the universe must have interacted with all the light energy over here. And there has not been enough time for that. When you can explain both of those through any observational evidence, that will answer the question for you how the light got here. Now, who used that kind of reasoning? If you can't answer my question, I won't answer yours. Yes. It's not avoiding the issue. It's showing you have a problem, too. We both have a problem, and we both must ultimately accept by faith. And that's how I'd answer that one. We don't have observable answers. We only have possible answers, and they could all be wrong. But we do have a God who can create out of nothing. We have a question back here. So uh, I've personally found out the answer to this question uh, via reading Scripture, but uh, it's a question that I know stumps a lot of uh, uh, believers that have been there for a long time, and definitely students. Well, what came first, the chicken or the egg? Go ahead. <laughs> Chickens were created. Eggs are Thank a result of the chicken. Thank you for that one. I like that one. <laughs> another one here? Okay, so um, I was wondering, how does science claim to state through geological dating of rocks that can therefore determine the age of the Earth? Um, what are they not telling us, and how do we as Christians explain their claims of heat and pressure in the beginning stages of the earth? Okay. How do we do the geologic dating, and what are they not telling us? Oh, we'll start there. A lot of circular reasoning. They date the geological layers by the fossils that are contained in the layers, and then they correlate their dates based on where those layers occur. So they're basically arguing in a circle. And a lot of the data, in fact, if, uh, if you listen to the talk that I gave this morning, I gave an explanation for the entire geological column, looking at it from a creationist viewpoint. And if you believe what the Genesis account gives you, there, and there's plenty of evidence. In fact, the evidence supports a different model than the evolutionary model that the Genesis Flood essentially laid down all of the layers of the geological column down to the Precambrian layer. And I, gave, I showed some photographs and gave some evidence that uh, this is a better model that explains the data that is out there. So in terms of geology, if the Genesis Flood laid down about a mile that you can observe uh, at the Grand Canyon, of sedimentary rock, in fact, all of the sedimentary rock, all over the planet, and it exists all over the planet, then that does away with millions and millions of years. And, and there's other arguments for other areas as well. What they're not telling us is they don't trust the radiometric dating methods. 
they trust the, what they find in geology over the radiometric dating. Now, how did they do radiometric dating? Well, they let the layer they found it in date the fossil. Well, how do we know those layers have those, those old fossils in? Well, they let the fossil date the layer and the layer to date the fossil. It's called circular reasoning, and they ignore it. Sometimes they'll come out and say, let me give you, let me give you a well-documented example. In, in Africa, they found that KB tough. Now, what is KB tough? Lava. It's a lava flow. It's another name for lava flow. They dated this lava flow at 230 million years old. Now, one of the things about dating, the dating process really starts, or the age starts, when the rock solidifies. Once it solidifies, then the dating can start. Dating process starts. After they dated this lava flow at 230 million years old, and that was well published, they found an alleged human ancestor in there. Notice they say alleged human ancestor in the lava flow. Now, how did that alleged human ancestor get in that hard lava flow? It couldn't have been there, couldn't have gotten there after it hardened. It had to be there when it was still soft and molten, which would have been 230 million years ago, wouldn't it? Well, how old are alleged human ancestors? Maybe two or three million years old. Do we see a dilemma for the evolutionists? Because the fossil was dated at 1.82 million years old. But the lava was dated 230 million years old. Now, what do the evolutionists do with this discrepancy? Well, they redated the lava flow, and just by chance, it came out to be 1.82 million years old. <laughs> then a few years later, they found another alleged human fossil, and they dated 1.61 million years old. Now, what are they going to do? Well, they redated the lava flow to be 1.61 million years old. So do they really trust the radiometric dating methods? Not at all. The geology dating, geological dating has precedence over the radioisotope dating. The evolutionary dating has precedence. Yes. In other words, they start with a presupposition that evolution is true. Do we do the same thing? Yes, we do. Our presupposition, we have one, everybody has one. We start with our presupposition, our worldview that says God exists and his word is true. The evolutionist starts with all that exists is mass and energy. Therefore, everything must be explained through naturalistic processes. So you have to understand the thinking. I was once an evolutionist, understood it very well. So I see the process, and that's where you start. You start with that mindset. Therefore, it doesn't matter what the evidence says. What matters is it must agree with your worldview, and that's the process. So the dating methods, yes, they're not telling us the circular reasoning. And the other thing they don't tell us is all these dating methods are based on assumptions. I was at a secular university, and I know what happens when I go in there. During, I always open it up to a Q&A time, and I know they cannot wait to destroy me. They just can't wait to make me look dumb, silly, and everything else. And I enjoy those situations. <laughs> and the Q&A time came up, and they would ask their questions. And my task is I'll answer their questions the best I can, but then I'll follow up with a question to them, which they really can't answer very well, and they get frustrated. So one of the professors stood up and said, well, why, why don't you tell them about the dating methods? You haven't talked about that. I said, I will, but if you wouldn't mind telling those students up there the assumptions in the dating methods. And he wouldn't do it because he hadn't taught it to his class. Therefore, I didn't have to answer his question. If he's not going to give the assumptions, then I don't have to talk about it at all because he's not trying to educate. There are three major assumptions that go into metro, uh, radiometric dating. All three of those assumptions have major problems with it. Yeah. So those are the things they're not telling us. See, it's not that we want to get creation in the textbooks. 
What we want is just the science. Just the science. Be honest about it. But the greatest source of censorship we have in this country, unfortunately, is, is our public education system. It's not that Christians are afraid of science. Science is good. God created it all. It's the evolutionist control over what gets taught. Actually, true science was invented by God. He is the creator of the universe, and what science endeavors to do is to understand that creation. They call it nature, but it's God's creation, and he set all of the laws of nature, and he is sovereign over all of those laws. Whenever he wants to change any of them, he can do it, and they're not necessarily constant, but God is the author, ultimately, of true science. If you know any youth that are interested in genetics, that is a powerful place to go right now. Many things are going to be done to, with genetics. We're even regrowing body parts already. So amazing things are happening. We're going to cure a lot of diseases. We may cause some new ones, but we're going to cure a lot of diseases. So a wonderful area to go into, genetics. Next question over here, sir. Well, you kind of already answered uh, what my question is, but uh, like in the Bible talks about there's a worldwide flood. Okay, secular science says there there was no worldwide flood. Uh, why the discrepancy? You, got, you guys already talked about that. If there is evidence like uh, fossils or, or seashells in the mountains, what is the explanation they use? And obviously they're not objective, but I wanted to hear from you guys. Yeah, I answered that question this morning, and there's overwhelming scientific evidence for the Genesis flood. If all of those layers from the Precambrian up were laid down by the Genesis flood, then all of that evidence, and it's all over the world. In other words, these layers exist all over the world. So there's overwhelming <clears throat> evidence worldwide of a Genesis flood. It's just a different model, and the, the issue is which model is best supported by the data, and I think we have, as believers, far more credible data that supports this this model that uh, I presented this morning. And Ray this morning, Ray, let me finish that. Ray this morning put out, it depends on your starting point, which one you have, your worldview. But you did ask, why are we finding seashells on top of Mount Everest and places like that? Basically what it's saying is, at one point in time, all those mountains had to be covered with ocean water. Now we know there's not a, enough water on this planet to cover them today, only about two miles high. And Mount Everest is a little taller. So what did the evolutionists tell us about this? Well, they believe over long periods of time the continents sank and they came back up. Well, there's a problem with that, and this is what they don't teach. The continents, the sediments they're made out of, are buoyant and will not sink. So they don't tell us the geology there. Our explanation is there was a worldwide flood, and the mountains weren't that tall because we do have good evidence of rapid mountain uplifting. Because during the flood, there would have been tremendous tectonic movements where we could have subduction, where one layer goes under another, causing one to lift up, or we have this happening from rapid mountain uplifting there from the Genesis flood, which would have put the seashells on top of all the mountain ranges we have. So two different explanations. Neither one was observed, but we do have the word of God, but as a Christian, we need to trust it. It's our authority. But again, it was not observed. Do we need the scientific evidence? No, we don't, but it's good to have it. It's nice to have scientific evidence, but it's not something we say we must have or I can't believe it. If that's your attitude, then you don't have God's word as your authority again. But God did give us a lot of evidence. So ultimately, again, we go back to a faith, both the evolutionist 
and the creationists must have faith in their worldview. We have another question in the middle of the back here, then we'll go over to the side next after that. So I'd like to know, like, you hear a lot, like, you have, like, two races of humans. You have, like, us, and then you have, like, hear a lot about Neanderthals and maybe a little bit about other races. I'd like to know what we say happened to, like, the Neanderthals. Did they exist? Did they get destroyed in the flood? What happened to them? Neanderthals, they're commonly uh, pictured as um, very robust, not quite human, but close. But everything we have discovered in Neanderthal anatomy we find in modern humans, everything. They had a thick brow ridge, not all of them, but they had a tendency to have a thick brow ridge right here. Uh, go to an orthodontics and ask that orthodontist, do you have any patients with a thick brow ridge? And they'll say yes. How does that happen? Well, there's two ways. One, by the way you jaws come together, and two, it can cause compression and push this out just a little bit. Another one is you live to be an old age. You know, your, your facial bones continue to thicken throughout most all your lifetime. So basically, all you're doing is you're living and living, getting a fatter head. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, but that's reality. So we do have that brow ridge. They tended to have a shorter, stockier body build, shorter extremities, arms and legs. But the Inuits are built the same way. What kind of a climate do the Inuits, the Eskimos live in? Cold, harsh climate that protects you because you give off less body heat. Guess where we find most of the Neanderthal bones? In Ice Age Europe area. So they, most of them were living during the Ice Age. Then other characteristics. We have found some DNA in their bones, which means they're really not that old. And the DNA is within the human range. Everything we know about Neanderthals, they were modern human beings. They buried their dead, which only humans do. They made jewelry, played musical instruments. Sounds human to me, doesn't it? If you were to dress one up, you wouldn't tell the difference today. So they're modern human beings. Uh, where'd they go? Well, they may have blended in with other human beings. You may be sitting next to one. No, no, no. <laughs> Sorry, they, sorry. they sell Geico insurance. So. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Over there. This will be our last question. Before you ask the question, if, uh, if you want a time frame for cavemen or Neanderthals, or whatever you want to call them, they probably existed after the Tower of Babel because the Tower of Babel, God basically intervened, confused the language, destroyed the technology, a high technology of that day, and people that lost technology had to survive in some way, so they resorted to extreme measures in terms of caves and that sort of thing. And your other question was, there's only one race, really, isn't there? It's called the human race. It seems like to me that the dating of billions of years versus just 6,000 is a critical issue for non-believers, atheists, and what you hear in the media all the time, that's the truth. Christians are crazy. And that's kind of, to me, important because how do we tell those people, the media, our friends, our family, that there's really not sufficient evidence to date back 230 million or whatever years. So the, the sources that I've heard you say, and I'm not a scientist, so radiometric dating, carbon dating, half-life, what do you say is the reliable method, if any, and is there a source that you can give us to just go learn more about that, and can we point someone else to that source and say, look, you don't have to 
go talk to Mike Riddle, but you can go online and you can find yes. this and you can see some truth that is not being taught. You can go to a source tomorrow morning. Yeah, Ray's going to be talking about it. Also, let me give you a source. The Red Answers book from Answers in Genesis. There's a, they come out with four Answers books. I wrote the whole chapter on carbon-14, documented it using the evolutionist's own journals, and then wrote a whole chapter on radiometric dating and documented that one too. There's also on our website, if you're interested, on the creationtraining.org website, creationtraining.org, we have over 80 30-minute videos for free. You can watch them. They're all over YouTube, too, but they're also on our website, creationtraining.org. On there, we've, I've, I have a, two sessions I talk on carbon-14, give the whole piece, start with the simple, then get a little more complex, have some on the, the radiometric dating methods, well-documented, and we've even interviewed other scientists, even interviewed three of the Cincinnati Bengal football players. All three Christians, they give a powerful testimony of what it's like to be a professional athlete and be a Christian. So, yes, there are sources out there that you can get. The problem is a lot of them get very technical. But if you look at the Carbon-14 one we have on our website, I start with just the basics. Yes, creationtraining.org. Over 80 videos out there. You can pick and choose which ones you want. They're all free. Yeah, but tomorrow morning, Ray will discuss some of that. And I'll also discuss some in my Did God Use Evolution, a defense of the gospel. I'd like to go ahead and finish now with a final piece, then we'll call it an evening. We're pretty familiar with David and Goliath, aren't we? Old Testament or New Testament? See, see, it's pretty easy. Now, Israel's getting ready to go to battle against the Philistines. And the Philistines bring out their giant Goliath. At that point, the Israelites had three options. Number one, they could have just sat around and said, oh, whatever happens, happens. That's called apathy where a lot of people in churches are today. Or they're going to wring their hands and say, woe is us, who can fight against a giant like this? That's called the pity party, and that's what they did. Or we can be like David and face that Goliath. Many people throughout history have faced Goliaths. Many. You sitting here today may be facing Goliaths. Might be spiritual Goliaths. Might be financial Goliaths or health Goliaths. But people throughout history have faced Goliaths. Let me give you three examples to finish it up. A young boy was burned so bad, the doctor said he would never walk again. His name was Glenn Cunningham. He grew up and set the world record in the mile. He faced his Goliath. He didn't sit back and say, woe is me. Another young boy was called stupid by his teacher. His mom found out about it and pulled him out of class. His name is Thomas Edison. Several years ago, I had the opportunity to train a little girl's track team. And our relay team made it to the state meet. Four girls. Each girl had to run 100 meters. The day the state meet came, and two of our girls couldn't make it for various reasons, so I had to put two substitutes on this team. Now, I wasn't sure how fast these other two girls might go, so I took our fastest girl and put her in the second position as a strategy that if our first girl wasn't fast enough, she would get us back in the race and we'd be competitive for a little while. And they all lined up at the track, and I noticed something very interesting. We had the four smallest girls on the track. And the gun blew. The first girls took off running as fast as they could. As our first girl's getting ready to hand off to our second girl, she steps on her heel. And our second girl goes onto the track. I've seen that happen in the Olympics, and I've seen it happen other places. And they get up, and they're crying, they're screaming, they're just upset, or they walk off the track in anger. Not this little girl. 
She's been trained. She knows the opposite of winning is not losing. It is quitting. As soon as she hit that track, she got that baton and got to her feet and started running as fast as she could. By the time she handed off, she'd already started gaining back some of what she had lost. The third girl got the baton and continued to gain. Then the fourth girl got the baton, and they became state champions. What could have been an embarrassing moment turned into victory because they faced that Goliath. Some of you will drop the baton in your Christian walk, but will you have the courage to pick it up and continue that race to the finish? Thank you, and God bless you all tonight. Um, we want to thank you for being here, and we appreciate that. I hope you did get a schedule for the morning, and I uh, hope, uh, hope to see you in the morning. Got a lot more to talk about. We, we don't have all the answers, do we? But we know the one who does, and that's the issue, right? We believe uh, that, the, that God created the heavens and the earth, and that it's by faith. He's the Lord for that, right? God bless you. Let me have a word of prayer with you, and uh, we'll dismiss. Father, thank you for tonight. Thank you for your grace. Uh, Lord, I thank you for that story to close this evening with. And Lord, we thank you that you're the one that gives us the strength and the energy and the power. Lord, that we can trust in you. And, and Lord, some of these questions are phenomenal. Uh, Lord, your creation is phenomenal. And we know that it points to you and that you're all strength, you're all wisdom, you're all knowledge. You created everything by your spoken word and you hold it all together. And so, Father, thank you for the opportunity to know you. Uh, Lord, thank you for sending your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to the cross so that we might be forgiven, and, Lord, that we might have life everlasting when we believe in you. Father, thank you for each one that came tonight, and I pray that they be blessed and encouraged. Uh, as we come back together again in the morning, I thank you, Father, for the opportunity to do that. I pray for each speaker. Thank you for Mike and Ray tonight, and I just pray for each one tomorrow, uh, Lord, that they would point to you in everything. Lord, we love you. We thank you for this evening. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Hey, God bless you. Have a wonderful evening tonight.